Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church at truthmatterschurch.org. The Lord's Day. We use this term a lot in Christian circles, but what does it mean? Is it just a religious way of saying Sunday, or does Scripture provide real insight on its meaning? Today we find out as we continue expositing the book of Revelation. Here is Pastor Alex. We will be continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And the title for our study today is the Lord's Day. I want to start and ask you a question. What's the Lord's Day? Sunday? Sunday? What's the Lord's Day? What comes to mind? The day we worship. And when is that? Here at Sunday. Okay. Until he returns? When he returns. That's the Lord's Day? It is the day of the Lord. But the title of our, our study today, we're going to talk a little bit more about this because John got this vision that we are beginning to unpack. He says it was on the Lord's Day. And I think for many of us, we have been taught or it's been claimed that the Lord's Day is a specific day. Yes, it's a day that we come together and worship, and some would say that's on a Sunday because that's the Lord's Day. Hey, I'll see you next Lord's Day. It's kind of common talk nowadays. But we're going to look to the Scripture to see what that is as we begin to unpack our lesson for today. So what we'll do is we will read our portion of text, just like we did last time. We'll read verses 9 through 20, even though we covered 9, but it's all together. And then we'll pick it up in verse 10. So let's read, shall we? Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9, and I'll be reading from the NAS. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars." And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we'll pause right there. And I do want to say this kind of up front. Uh, I know Revelation is intimidating, for many of us, me included, it's intimidating. But I can tell you that with the principles that we've been following to this day, it's starting not to become actually so complicated as initially thought. Because we're following solid principles by using Scripture with Scripture and all of the rules of engagement that we set out from the very beginning. So my hope and my prayer is that as it starts to become a little less mysterious, less intimidating, at least for me, that in turn that'll translate over to you so that now when you hear a lot of this figurative talk, using Scripture to tell us what is being communicated, 
then the goal is there is the enlightenment in terms of what that truth is revealed. So I know that when we're studying Revelation, it can seem like that, but just stay, you know, just stay the course. And I think you and I will be surprised of how really clear sometimes it can be when otherwise it was unclear because we're really trying to just hear what the scripture says to us, you know, to the churches. Amen. So with that, let's, let's look at verse 10, shall we? Uh, John says there, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So when John says, I was in the spirit, literally, I was in the pneuma. And as we've talked about previously, pneuma is spirit or breath, and the context will tell you what that being is. So here he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The context tells us that John was in the Holy Spirit. As some might say, John was inspired or moved by the Holy Spirit when he got this vision. And this happened on the Lord's day. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about this. And then we will also look at in this verse when it says he heard a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet and what we can glean from there. So let's talk about the Lord's day, shall we? So the Lord's Day is the Kyriakos Himera. And the root for Kyriakos is Kyrios. And we're, we should hopefully start to get familiar with Kyrios. Kyrios is the, one of God's many titles of Lord. It was one of the title, you know, it was the authority that was given upon Christ in his exaltation. And we've covered that extensively. But here, that's the root of this Lord's Day. It's the, you know, the root word is curios, but it is the kyriakos. It is the, uh, with the uh, possessive, it's a possessive noun. So here, the Lord's Day, the apostrophe S, it makes it a possessive noun. So if you're saying that's mine's or that's so-and-so's, right? That's John's, plural. It's a possessive noun. So humera means day or occasion or time. So the Lord's Day or the Kyriakos Himera, it quite literally means this is the Lord's Day. This is the Lord's appointed time. And my question is, what day is that? And we've talked a little bit about that in our introduction. You want to take some other guesses before we flip the slide? Well, I'll say this. It's not Sunday. I'll just say that up front. And I'll say this. Nowhere in Scripture is the first day of the week a holy day. Nowhere is that the Lord's day. That the Scripture says Sunday is the Lord's day in Scripture. But wait a minute, didn't Jesus rise on the first day of the week? The first day of the week in the Hebrew calendar, isn't that on a Sunday? Well, it's part of Sunday. From a Hebrew standpoint, the first day of the week starts Saturday night. So when it's Saturday, our time, and it becomes dark, once it becomes dark, your Saturday night, that's the first day of the week. Sabbath's over. Sabbath is from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And that begins the next day. From a Hebrew standpoint, there was evening and there was morning the first day. They measure their days or their days start from evening to evening. Now, for us here in the West, it's a little bit hard for us because our day starts when the clock hits midnight. That's the next day. Well, from a Hebrew standpoint, they don't measure their days that way. And from a scriptural standpoint, you don't interpret days that way either. So the first day of the week actually begins on a Saturday night. So here's another thing, and I've kind of mentioned this you know, in, our, in our opening comments. Resurrection Sunday. You hear that terminology? Hey, happy Resurrection Sunday. I've said that, I've greeted that to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ you know, for, for many of the, the years of my, of my time as, as a believer. And again, I'll throw this plug out there for the study on the Good Wednesday. We won't get into it. But Jesus did not rise on a Sunday. He rose at the completion of the Sabbath on a Saturday night. When the women came to the tomb Sunday morning, it was already empty. So the first day of the week, keeping in mind, starts from a Saturday night, lasts until Sunday night. That's the first day of the week. And when I try to read some commentaries, I'm like, where, where did this come from? 
this confusion of the Lord's Day. And, you know, right now, I know we're talking about the Lord's Day. This will open up because we're going to start to get back into the Old Testament and understand, you know, what God's holy days are. And it's good for us to keep that in mind as we're studying his word because his word has its roots and origin and its foundation in the Old Testament with the New Testament, you know, building off of that. But what I found is what people are, 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 are a lot of commentaries and teachers, they're confusing, you know, some of the accounts, let's say in Acts, where there was an account of breaking bread on the first day of the week. And breaking bread, as we know, is synonymous with the Lord's Supper. So what I can kind of glean from that is that seems to contribute with some maybe just some really shallow study of Scripture that, oh, the disciples met on the first day of the week. They broke bread first day. Um, that's when they gathered the early Christians. So the early Christians met every Sunday, something along those lines. But let's take a look at that mention in Acts chapter 20. And the context here, this was during Paul's third missionary journey in Troas, and we'll pick it up in verse 7. On the first day of the week, there's a mention of the first day of the week. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and there was a young man named Itticus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up for dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took the boy away alive, and they were greatly comforted. So here's one passage where some teachers or commentators, they'll say, oh, look, there's the first day of the week. They gathered together to break bread, first day of the week, Sunday. The, this is the early church, Acts chapter 20. The early church met on a Sunday, and that's why we're doing that traditionally, even here in the West to this day. But allow me now to look at this same passage, and let me put in some days and times now for us. Let me reread the same thing. On the first day of the week, Saturday night, first of all, when we were gathered together to break bread, have the Lord's Supper or communion, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. He wanted to leave by Sunday morning. And he prolonged his message until midnight, Sunday, 12 a.m. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Itticus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And Paul kept on talking. He was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And then when he had gone back up, he had broken the bread and eaten. He talked with them a little while or a long while until daybreak, until Sunday, 6 a.m. And then he left. Then they took the boy away alive and they were greatly comforted. So in this particular passage, Paul started to teach from around 6 p.m. Saturday night until 6 a.m. the following day at daybreak. That's 12 hours. You guys want to do a 12-hour study? <laughs> but there are some teachings that just kind of read this loosely and saying, oh, the first day of the week, there it is. Now we're going to follow that because that's what the Scripture tells us, right, or informs us. So even in the single mention of the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper being observed on the same day, first of all, okay, if you're trying to follow the early church and you're trying to use Acts 20, well, they met on a Saturday night. And it was until early daybreak, not Sunday, even during the day. So in fact, if you look at the first century believers, and in particular the, the Jewish believers, they didn't meet once a week on a Sunday. In fact, they met daily and broke bread, the Lord's Supper, throughout the week. And we'll look at Acts once again for this. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. And this is after Pentecost, and this is after Peter's great sermon. And this is after 3,000 souls, Jews, were saved. We'll pick it up in verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, not just Sunday, in fact, 
continuing with one mind, but where did they meet? In the temple. The temple wasn't destroyed yet. And breaking bread from house to house. Not only did they meet in the temple, they also broke bread, and likely an inference there to the Lord's Supper, from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here in this passage, even the breaking of bread, let's say that was part of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't even limited to the first day of the week. And just so you know, and this is why when you read Paul as often as you do it, when he gives the instructions of the Lord's Supper, it's as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Not do this on Sunday when you come together in remembrance of me. So here's my case in point. The, the Lord's Day is not a Sunday. And not even did the first century Jewish converts just meet on Sundays. And I want to put a little pause here. I'm not going Seventh-day Adventist here. Okay? <laughs> I, I, just, I just want you to know that. But I'm going to stay true to the Scripture. Now, this begs the question. This begs the question. Why is the Lord's Day often associated in Christian churches as a Sunday? Right now, if you ask anyone here in the West, Sundays is for church. That's when you go to church. That's, what we're, that's our tradition, as far as many of us can remember. From here, I don't want to digress too much, but we're going to touch a little bit on church history, just a little bit. And this is very pointed. Here's a short answer. The Catholic Church, they took it upon themselves to make Sunday a holy day. And I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. First of all, for, for some of us who's had a Catholic background, I have a Catholic background, I went through catechism. Here's some Q&As from, it's called the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. Here's some Q&As. Which is the Sabbath day? Saturday is the Sabbath day. Now, I do want to pause there. I mentioned Seventh-day Adventists. Some of the teachings there goes along the line that says, well, the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. No, no, no. Look, we're here. They recognize the Sabbath as a Saturday. And when you get technical, it's Friday night. That's when the Sabbath begins, and it ends on Saturday night. But anyhow, there are some, also some teachings even on, on, in that denomination that actually even misrepresents the Catholic doctrine. They hold, they, if you ask them, what's the Sabbath day? They'll say, it's, it's Saturday. And here's another Q&A in this Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. And by the way, I confirmed this. I actually went to the actual source. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday then? If the Sabbath is a Saturday, why, as a Catholic church, why are we observing it on Sunday instead? This is what they said. We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic church in the council of what? Laodicea. Hmm. Isn't there one of the letters to the seven churches to Laodicea? Hmm, there's a connection point here. Transfer the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. And I'm gonna, we're going to get to that. There was a council that was held and they transferred the solemnity from a Saturday to a Sunday. Okay, I'll show you that. But here, here are some other Q&As. Why did the Catholic Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? That's what they said. The church substituted Sunday for Saturday because Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. Okay? And the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles on a Sunday. Again, Christ did not rise on a Sunday. He rose on a Saturday night. On Sunday, the tomb was empty. But this is what their Q&A says. But that's why they go, oh, why are you moving it from Saturday to Sunday? Oh, Jesus rose on the dead on a Sunday. Or don't you hear that in a lot of Easter messages now? Why do, we, why do we gather together? Why is this Resurrection Sunday? Because this is the first day of the week that the Lord rose from the dead. That's what you're going to be told in some shape or fashion. Here's a, a, one last question. By what authority did the church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Okay, what authority? Are, you're making Sunday a holy day. By what authority are you doing that? The church substituted Sunday for a Saturday by the plentitude of that divine power which Jesus Christ bestowed upon her. Let me say it another way. We're all familiar with the passage when Jesus says, 
you know, who do you say that, you know, who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And he goes, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And it says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and death and Hades shall not prevail from it. So what the Catholic Church will say, oh, the keys and the authority was given to Peter, the apostles, the apostleship that stays with the church, and then ultimately to the popes. So they have the authority to do this, is what they're saying. With that, here is what's kind of behind the confusion. Why churches here in the West traditionally meet on Sundays. Here's why. When they convened at the Council of Laodicea, and this is in the 4th century, they, they enacted 60 observances, or 60, they call it canons. They call it canons. So I don't want to get this confused. There's the canon of Scripture, which was this vetting process on which books belong in the Bible. That's the canonization of Scripture. But in this council, and whenever they have a council, they say, okay, well, here's canon. Here are the observances. Here are the traditions that we're going to enact. They did 60 on that fourth century council. They did 60 canons. Here's two of them. Canon number 16. Among the Greeks, the Sabbath was kept exactly as the Lord's day, except so far as the cessation of work was concerned. Wherefore, the council wishes that, as on Sundays, after the other lessons, there should follow the gospel. End quote. Let me say this another way. They recognized that at least the first century, or the Greeks, in the land, this first century, they acknowledged the Sabbath as the holy day. But they're saying, oh, you know what? The Gospels actually inform us that Sunday is the day that we should meet. Where in the Gospels? But this, is, this becomes their canon. Okay? I, I'm, I'm letting you know why are, we, why are churches, as far as we can remember, meeting on Sundays. This council of Laodicea back in the 4th century, so we're talking about year 300-something, made these canons that has influenced the Christian church even to this day. Here's another canon that they wrote, canon number 29. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath. Oh, this is interesting. But must work on the Sabbath. Must work on that day. Rather, honoring the Lord's day. Here, they're defining what the Lord's day is. And if they can, resting then as Christians, but if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. Here's kind of a flipping the script. The Sabbath, which God set aside, is holy. And by the way, this is applicable to the people of Israel, to Jews. This doesn't apply to us who aren't Jews, who aren't under the law. Now, the Sabbath, God set it aside and made it holy. And he says, thou shall not do any work. Okay? And we know that when you read the New Testament, and when you read you know, what the, especially like the Apostle Paul came out of and was combating, was these Judaizers trying to uphold the law and observances, including the Sabbath. There's, there's a tons of it all in the New Testament. So this is what the Catholic Church said. Okay, don't be like a Judaizer by saying you can't work on a Sabbath. Actually work. That's what, that's what they're saying. Instead, then rest on the Lord's day. So you're commanded to work on the Sabbath is what the Catholic Church is saying here. And then you're commanded then to rest on Sunday instead. That's what came out of this council in Laodicea. Here's my case in point. Christian churches traditionally meet on Sundays because of the decisions by the Catholic Church, and this started at least as way back in the 4th century. Even after the Great Reformation in the early 16th century, we're talking about year 1500-something, Churches continue to meet on Sundays even to this day because if you ask the reformers, hey, okay, why are you still meeting on Sundays then? Okay, you're reforming and breaking away out of the Catholic Church and reforming and going back to the solas scriptoras. Why are you still meeting on Sundays, reformers? This is what they're going to say. Well, Jesus rose on a Sunday. Many reformers will say that. Where did you get Jesus rose on a Sunday? The Catholic Church said that in one of their canons. Again, go back to that Good Wednesday study. I, you know, I put a lot of work into using the Scripture to tell us what day Jesus 
died and what day Jesus rose. He did not rise on a Sunday. And then they'll also say, if you ask the reformers, then, okay, you reformed away from the Catholic Church. Let's go back to the Scripture. What does the Scripture say? They also believe that the Gospels support meeting on the first day of the week. They'll go to Acts, for example, as we just mentioned. And they'll say, oh, the first century believers, go back to Acts, they met on Sundays. No, they didn't. We just, I just put in the days and times for us. Even the, the you know, single mention of the first day of the week and the, and the Lord's Supper was actually on a Saturday night. So now with that, what is the Lord's Day biblically? Well, here's the answer. It must be a Sabbath, okay? It must be a Sabbath day. And it must be set aside for himself and it must be made holy. Because this is the Lord's possessive day. Here's an important note. And this is what's also missed. Especially when you hear, you're going to hear the Easter messages. I'm just warning you now. They don't take into account there's more than one Sabbath day. There's the weekly Sabbath. There's, there's high Sabbaths. Have you heard of high Sabbath? There's one mentioned in the Gospels. There's seven annual Sabbath days. They are tied to seven feasts, the biblical feasts. And if a high Sabbath happened to fall on a weekly Sabbath on the same day, that could happen. You know what that's called? A double Sabbath. If both the weekly and the high Sabbath fell, let's say on the seventh day of the week. So here, whatever this Lord's day is, it must be on a Sabbath day at least. So let's look at what are the eligible options. Out of the seven annual Sabbaths, the seventh annual high Sabbaths, in the spring feasts, three of those high Sabbaths fell in those spring feasts. So Passover, the day of preparation, as you'll see in Scripture, or Pesach, that's on Nisan 14, on the Hebrew calendar. That's when the lamb is killed at twilight. The lambs are killed right before the evening, that Nisan 14. The next day, which is that night, now it's no longer twilight, it's now night. That's the first day of unleavened bread. And that's on Nisan 15. When you read the Gospels, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are so integrated because it is on eight consecutive days. And oftentimes it's just called a feast. But here I'm breaking it out for us. When you get to the seventh day now of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's a high Sabbath. That's, I call that high Sabbath number two. That day, no one shall do any work, just like the weekly Sabbath. Then when you get after that, when you get to the 50th day from Nisan 16, day two, then you get to the Feast of Weeks. It's also Pentecost, Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. That would be the third high Sabbath. So there's the three high Sabbaths as part of the spring feast. And I'm going to summarize this at the end. Now the other four annual Sabbaths, high Sabbaths, they are in the fall feasts. Here they are. So the Feast of Trumpets is on Tishri 1. That's the Feast of Trumpets. It's also called Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. That's the fourth right now, high Sabbath number four. Nine days later, when you get to Tishri 10, so this is the seventh month of the 10th day, it's the Day of Atonement. That's Yom Kippur. When you get to Tishri 10, that's the Day of Atonement. That's a high Sabbath. Again, no work can be done on high Sabbaths, just like a weekly Sabbath. That's number five. Five days after the Day of Atonement, you have the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. So that begins on Tishri 15, which is day one of the Feast of Booths. So it's seven days. When you get to Tishri 16, day, the second day of the Feast of Booths, it's a regular day, not a Sabbath, all the way until you get to Tishri 22. So the Feast of Booths is seven days. On the first day of the Feast of Booths, on Tishri 15, that's High Sabbath number six. When you get to the eighth day after right, the, first, you know, the Feast of Booths, on the eighth day, that is called the Great Day of the Feast. That's also called the Shimini Atzeret. And that's the seventh and final High Sabbath. Oh, and a little extra brownie points here. 
when you, now when you read John chapter 7, and remember when Jesus made this, I am the living waters claim, uh, picking up verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out and saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That was Tishri 22, the final great day of the feast, the eighth day. So here's one last note. Remember, the Lord's Day has to be a Sabbath. And right now, there's the weekly Sabbath, and we just found there's also these seven high Sabbaths as part of the feasts. I just want to make this note, just us doing our due diligence. But did you guys know there's also a sabbatical year? And there's the, have you heard of the year of Jubilee? Have you heard of Jubilee? Well, just like in a seven-day week, you work six days, and then on the seventh day, you rest on the Sabbath. That's the week, you know, that, that's a seven-day week. There is a seven-year week. It's kind of same principle. For six years, the people of Israel were commanded to work. You can work for six years. And then on the seventh year is a year of rest. You heard a sabbatical? That's a sabbatical year. So, the, so after six years, that seventh year is a sabbatical year. They cannot toil the land or its crops, only what was there originally. You know, they can't plant new crops and harvest that, that sabbatical year. So then after, let's say, seven sabbatical years, so that's 49 years, right? On the 50th year, or the 50th sabbatical year, I should say, that's the year of Jubilee. That's the year, it was a great day for the people of Israel. That sabbatical year, can you imagine this? You know if you're in debt? Gone. Man, I wish we had a sabbatical year here, or, or a jubilee. We'll just rack up our credit cards and get all these loans and be like, you know what, I'm waiting for that jubilee, right? I mean, just, just being, you know, putting our human part of it. But that jubilee, your debts were canceled. And, you know, your property, whatever the original property was, it'll go back to you. So if you bought a house and you weren't the original owners, it goes back, you have to give it back. You're no longer a homeowner. It goes back to the original. It was a great year. It was the year of Jubilee. But I just mentioned this just for us doing our due diligence. But as far as the, Lord day, the Lord's day is concerned, it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's year. But I just want to mention this just, just to point out that there are other Sabbaths also in Scripture. So back to the point in hand. In verse 10, the Lord's day, it must be on a Sabbath, a day that God set aside for himself and made holy. So here are the eligible ones. Here's the summary of it. We have the weekly Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week, again, Friday night to Saturday night. We have high Sabbaths number one and two, which is part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. High Sabbath number three, which is part of Pentecost. High Sabbath number four, the Feast of Trumpets. High Sabbath number five, which is part of the Day of, of Atonement. High Sabbath number six, which is the Feast of Booths. And there is the great day of the feast, the high, high Sabbath number seven, which is the eighth day you know, from the Feast of Booths. Which one is it? <laughs> You can only pick one. You said the weekly Sabbath, right? The weekly Sabbath. Here's, here's why. Here's why I'm going to argue it is the weekly Sabbath. When John says he was on the Spirit on the Lord's day, because he used the possessive noun, he said this is the Lord's apostrophe S. And because the seventh day of the week is a day that God himself blessed it, he sanctified it, he made it holy, because he rested on that day, I favor the weekly Sabbath. I do want to say this. Is there another plausible option? There is. Because in the same verse, John said that he heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So if someone were to come to me and say, well, no, the Lord's Day here he's speaking about has to do with a, one of the high Sabbaths that includes the blowing of a trumpet, I'm going to say, you know what, it is possible. So I'm not going to be like, completely dogmatic, but I do favor the weekly Sabbath. So that brings the next question, okay, which of the high Sabbaths actually has a blowing of the trumpet or a blowing of a ram's horn, let's say? There's only one, the Feast of Trumpets. And just, you know, this is where I spend a lot of my time just going back through the Old Testament, going back through the feasts, and figuring out, okay, which feast actually involves the blowing of a trumpet or the sounding of a ram's horn. And it only was the Feast of Trumpets, with one caveat. Did you know 
that on the year of Jubilee, there is a day that another feast that there is a blowing of a trumpet. So if it's a Jubilee year, that day of atonement, Tishri 10, there is a blowing of a trumpet on that day, only in that Jubilee year. So there are a remote possibility. You know, if you were to come and say, well, the Lord's day was the day of atonement, I'd be like, it is a remote possibility. You know, you can't discount it. Um, I think it's unlikely, but there is a blowing of a trumpet. So here's my case in point. See, when you read Scripture, the Lord's day. When John says, I was on the Spirit, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, don't automatically assume it was a Sunday. Unlearn that. Let's keep not only the Hebrew days in view. Remember, when we study Scripture, we need to study it from a Hebrew standpoint. How they measure days. How they measure years. We have to study it from that viewpoint because ultimately, especially when you get to, you know, from the call of Abraham in the Old Testament all the way through, the Scriptures is a Hebrew-centric book. So when John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day using Scripture, I favor that this was on a weekly Sabbath. For he blessed it and sanctified it and made it holy and rested on that day. So let's revisit verses 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So here John was, he was commanded to write what he saw in this great vision. And John was commanded to send it, what he wrote and what, you know, what he saw, he had to write it down, and he says, send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They are the primary intended recipients of this letter, and they are the seven churches that existed at the time that John penned this book. So as believers, and I mentioned this before, when you study the Bible and you're reading the book of Romans, it wasn't written to you. That was written to the Romans at that point in time. To, you know, to Timothy. Are you Timothy? My, you know, when he calls him his son in the faith, are, are you the son in the faith? Is Paul talking to you? He's talking to Timothy. When you, when you read the book of Ephesians, the believers in Ephesus, are you a believer in Ephesus? No. So the book of Revelation is no different. This is a letter to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's who the primary recipients are of this letter. And just like we studied the rest of Scripture, even though it wasn't written to us, what's communicated is the gospel, is God's redemptive will and plan, is, is the truth that will set us free. And the promises that are applicable to us, that's what we're trying to learn from, kind of like as a fly on the wall, trying to understand it. Don't put yourself in the Bible. Like, make it speak to you like that. Don't do that. The Bible wasn't written so that you can put yourself in the text. The Bible was written to a specific time, to a specific people, at a specific epoch of time where God was revealing His redemptive will and plan until ultimately it was fully revealed when all of Scripture was collected and compiled. And we're just trying to understand what it is. So here's a solid hermeneutics. Keep this in view, what I just mentioned. Keep that in mind when we're studying the book of Revelation. Then it becomes like, okay, it's not, I don't have to worry about it being applicable to me. I'm just trying to understand what was the message being communicated and what, what, can, we, what can we learn from this? What can we take away from this? Because we also know in Scripture there's prophecies. Some have been fulfilled and some have yet to be fulfilled. But the more we you know, try to stay true to the principles that we've been trying to follow, uh, it'll help us at least try to understand what God is doing in the world and even in our day-to-day. So as a reminder, here's the seven churches of Revelation. As you can see, it's on, you know, in, in the Bible, it's, they're called Asia Minor at that time, but it's modern-day Turkey, and it's more on the west coast of Turkey and there you see the seven churches. So beginning at the top, you have Pergamum, then going towards the south, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, Laodicea. 
Then off the coast of Turkey, there is this island called Patmos. See that other location there? That's where John was. And he was commanded to write down what he saw and deliver it to these seven churches. And I put some, you know, just for a way of us to kind of keep in mind, where is this in the world today? So it's in Turkey, but there you can see if you go south of Turkey, then you start getting into the Syria, Lebanon, where Jerusalem is today, and then Israel. That's kind of where we are today. But also, this is just something interesting as I'm kind of just letting this, you know, Scripture teach itself, is those seven churches happen to fall on the Rab Yam. So there's the, there are, they fall, they're all on the Mediterranean Sea. They're all right there. And, you know, could there be some implication of what happened to them as part of, you know, Daniel's great vision, but ultimately it was also prophetic to the end times. We can't rule that out as well. But this kind of gives us a visual of where the seven churches. So when we start getting into the letters to the seven churches, this was who it was written to. So with that, let's go ahead and go to verse 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Remember, John was commanded to write what he saw, and this is what he saw. He turned to see the voice that was speaking to him, and having turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So seven lampstands, if you, when we get to verse 20, we get the interpretation of what that is. The seven lampstands are the seven churches that are the primary recipients of this letter. And remember, one of our rules of engagement, number four, we must interpret Scripture with the literal fulfillment. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this again. You know, what I'm arguing and what I'm presenting before you is what the Scripture says literally. And yes, there's going to be, like here in the vision, there's seven golden lampstands. Okay, he saw seven golden lampstands, literally. That's what he saw. But we know that that was representative of the seven churches. So the, the scripture tells us, okay, what that vision was, what it represents is this. So you believe that literally. That he saw seven lampstands, and it represents the seven churches churches. So we're going to believe, we're going to interpret it with a literal fulfillment. So when John saw seven golden lampstands, he saw one, two, three, four, five, six, seven golden lampstands. The Greek is luchnia, and that means lamp, or it can be lantern, and, uh, or a candlestick, and that represents the seven churches. Then I want to talk a little bit about luchnia, the, the, the lampstands. What is that? We'll look at that in the Greek. We'll look at it from a Greek context, and then we're going to look at it from a Hebrew context. So, luchnia is the same word that Jesus used in some of his parables. Remember, luchnia is the lampstands that he saw, and that was the Greek word. And we'll look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 14. Jesus speaking there. He goes, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp, a luchnos, that's not a luchnya, lamp, a luchnos, and put it under a basket, but he puts, the, he puts it on the lampstand, a luchnya, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So something to keep in mind, luchnya is not a lantern where you kind of hold by hand, and you, like I say, it's dark, you're in somewhere and you're holding a, that's not a luchnia. A luchnia is the, you actually take that and you put it on a candlestick or a lampstand. That's the luchnia. And that's what John saw. That's the Greek word. That's what he saw. This is in the Greek context. We'll look at uh, another example, Luke 11. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 33. And this is after the, Jesus gave the sign of Jonah declaration. No one, after lighting a lamp, there it is again, luchnos, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on a lampstand, on a luchnya, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp, the luchnos of your body. 
when your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light, but when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. And when the lamp, the Luchnos, illumines you with its rays. So same as the parable, the Luchnos, the parable of the other parable of, uh, in the Beatitudes, the luchnos is the lamp, and it's put on a luchnia, a lampstand, so that it will project the light. So we, are we getting it? Luchnia, in a Greek context, it just means that candlestick that holds a luchnos or a lantern. So we'll look at one more example, but this time we're going to look at it from a Hebrew context. Hebrews 9. Uh, we'll go verses 1 and 2. And here he, the writer of Hebrews was speaking of the Old and the New Covenant. Now, even the first covenant, and the first covenant is the Mosaic Covenant. Now, even the first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the lutch, yeah, and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. So in the Greek context, luchnia can mean just a general single lampstand, and we saw some of those examples in the parables. But if you look at it in the Hebrew context with the tabernacle, luchnia means the golden menorah. In the tabernacle, uh, you know, a single lampstand. So in the, in the tabernacle, in the holy place, as, you know, among the articles, there was a lampstand or a menorah, and we'll see what that looked like that was in the tabernacle. So I want to ask you guys a question. I want to keep you guys engaged here. So which one did John see? Here are the options. Is it option A, where Jesus was standing in the middle of seven candlesticks or lampstands in a Greek context? Or option B, did John see just one menorah with seven stems? And each of those stems represents the churches, the seven churches? Or is it option C, where Jesus was standing in the middle of seven menorahs? What do you think? I've always pictured A. You've always pictured A? Okay. Anyone else want to take a guess? It's a stand. Okay. You think it's A? All right, let, 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 let's, let's walk through this. Remember, rules of engagement. Seven means seven. So there are seven golden lampstands. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven golden lampstands, not seven stems. So we can pretty much kind of off the bat, it's not B. So we're now, we're le- now we're left with A or C. Option A, it has seven single lampstands, but here's where I have pause. Because it's not consistent with the golden menorah in the tabernacle, Remember, the earthly tabernacle is a representation of a true tabernacle that is in heaven. It's like a shadow. Option A loses its luster for me because of that. Now, when you interpret it just literally the way it is, can option A fit it? Yes. But you need to take it with other scripture. So that kind of led me to just put a pause there and say, okay, it loses its luster for me because it all has to just... You can't find a way to explain it away, pretty much. And as I mentioned, option B, it it seems plausible on the surface because there was one menorah in the tabernacle on earth. And this is where it gets a little tricky. You're like, well, there was one tabernacle, so maybe it's just seven stems. But it doesn't say seven stems. It says seven lampstands. (laughs) It, It stands by itself is the idea here. So that's why option B loses its luster for me. Whereas option C... It's both consistent from an earthly tabernacle standpoint in that it's an actual menorah, and it's a true word-for-word literal interpretation. There was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So if you ask me, I think what's more consistent with what John saw is option C, Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden menorahs. So let's close this, shall we? John was given this great vision on the Lord's Day. Okay, what day isn't it? Thank you. Let's let the Scripture tell us what the Lord's Day is, not man. 
If anyone tries to say, this is a holy day of God, I don't care what denomination or religion you're from, says who? Says who? The Laodiceans, <laughs> the Laodiceans right. Let the Scripture tell us what day is holy and what isn't. Let it, let it tell us. Don't let man or tradition or some sort of counsel that went away from the Scripture. I submit to you that John was given this great vision on a weekly Sabbath, the day of the week that God sanctified for himself and made holy, and that the original tabernacle, which is a type of the heavenly one, only had, although it only had one menorah with seven stems, but in this vision, John not saw one, but he saw seven golden lampstands. He saw seven golden menorahs, which represents the seven churches. In this vision, John sees the risen Christ clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Just a little purview here, because we're going to start to get into the Son of Man in this vision. When it says the robe that went to his feet and the golden sash or the sash, just so you know, this is part of the garments of the priests. So if you go back to what was prescribed in the Old Testament, you know, to Aaron and his sons, what was also part of the priestly garments or attire was a, you know, in addition to a sash and a, and a robe, it was a breast piece, an ephod, a tunic of checkered work, a turban made with gold, blue, and purple scarlet material, and fine linen. Let me say this another way. When he sees Jesus standing in the middle of seven menorahs, seven golden lampstands. And he starts to describe the Son of Man. He's starting to describe Him in a priestly garment. So for our next study, we're going to look more closely on the features and characteristics of this risen Son of Man in priestly attire. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. It is amazing what we continue to find as we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, using God's written Word, His inspired Word, as the source for truth. And while some of these facts may rub against our traditions, the goal of every true believer should be to know the truth contained in Scripture, no matter what it says. And then we've got to apply it to our lives. After all, Jesus himself said, the truth will set us free. We do hope you're enjoying this study in the book of Revelation. If you are, be sure to subscribe to the Truth Matters Church podcast on your favorite platform and like us on Sermon Audio. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.